Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to this, our fifth lecture in the Rare Book School Summer Series. I think that there are few people who are as equipped to talk about the book in Latin America, both in its material dimensions and in its socio-historical dimensions as our speaker today. Hortensia Calvo is the director of the Latin American Library at Tulane University. She specializes in the Spanish-American literary Baroque and the social history of colonial books and print culture. Her doctorate is from Yale University. She has published enormously influential articles. Her chapter in the Blackwell's a Companion to the History of the Book and her review of the scholarly literature and uh, delineation of the historiography of the Latin American book, how it is like and unlike other forms of book history for, as she explains, uh, it does not come out of the Anal school, as so much book history does, but has a far antecedent history to that, really helped put Latin American book history on the map in North America. She has, if she were a boxer, we would say, punched far above her weight. <laughs> She's here today to prove the old adage that no good deed will go unpunished. Because I heard her speak, had the enormous pleasure of hearing Hortensia speak at the Sharp Conference in Toronto in 2009, uh, just before I came to Charlottesville to become the director of Rare Book School. And knowing that that was hanging over my head, I was attending to the lectures thinking, whom would I most like to get to come to Charlottesville and be a victim of the lecture series as I myself had been in 2007? And I thought, one of these days we're going to get Hortensia Calvo here and she is going to illuminate the fascinating subject of the material and social history in all its great historical sweep of the Latin American book, Hortensia. Oh, you are far too generous. Um, I would like to extend a warm thank you to the Rare Book School. No victimization here at all. What an honor to be here and particularly, of course, to director Michael Suarez for the kind invitation. Um, I also want to especially thank Jeremy Dibble for his expert help with the logistics of my visit. It was completely impeccable, as any of you have had. I guess all the students here and, and the faculty who, who live elsewhere have gone through uh, Jeremy's uh, expert hands, and I want to thank you. Um, and to all of you present, thank you for being here. 
I have a bit of a daunting task today, which is only partly self-inflicted. Um, I chose to speak on the social history of the book in early uh, modern or colonial uh, Spanish America. And so I will be referencing some, oh, roughly a thousand years of history in, in 20, 40 minutes. Okay. Um, so I hope those seats have seat belts. Um, and I hope the ride isn't very bumpy. But I would like to begin then um, by saying that really, actually, the daunting part of it isn't so much the long span that uh, I won't be covering, I'll just be referencing um, um, that huge span, um, is that, as has often been said, Latin America or Spanish America um, is a concept that often only exists in Europe and the United <coughs> States. And nowhere is this more applicable than in the case of book history. And I want to begin by let's just get our bearings and refresh our memories. And here we have um, a map of modern uh, Latin America. Um, and of course, we have Mexico at the top, Argentina. Uh, here we go. Argentina is down here. I'm going to be speaking about Peru, Mexico. Here we have Central America, Guatemala's here, Caribbean, uh, Colombia, Venezuela. Um, Chile is the other place that, that, that comes up. Um, Spanish America is composed of 18 different countries and 19 if we count uh, Puerto Rico. Um, and these countries may appear similar from abroad, but actually they have quite distinct histories, ethnic and racial compositions, levels of economic development, literacy indexes, and a number of distinct non-official languages, all of which have impacted the colonial book and its study. Actually, it's impacted all of book history. Um, the other thing I want to say is that when I say Spanish America, um, I'm not including Brazil, and I'm not including um, any of the mainland or um, islands that speak other languages other than Spanish. Um, so that's what I'll be covering today. So let me begin with some contours and caveats. The early modern or colonial period for Spanish America stretches from 1492, the arrival of Columbus, um, to roughly 1821, 1822, when independence is complete for most, independence from Spain is complete for most of the countries. Remember, Cuba uh, uh, remains and Puerto Rico remained colonies of Spain through the 19th century until the War of 1898. So we're basically talking um, uh, the colonial period. Of course, one can argue that some countries have remained colonies, but we won't go there. So um, I want to now point to a map of Spanish America in the early colonial period, so the 1550s more or less. And here we have, this is, um, um, initially there were two um, vice royalties. The vice royalty of New Spain, which was the colonial name of Mexico, and then we have the vice royalty of Peru. And this extended all the way down here and all the way over here. Um, and then New Spain included the Caribbean and all the way down. Um, 
parts of the United States also. And it's, well, anyway. Um, so these were the administrative divisions. And they happened to be the places um, uh, with the most dense populations of Indian uh, societies, um, the first two viceroyalties. Um, so printing was established in a very uneven fashion, beginning in 1539 in Mexico, um, and then over 40 years later in Peru in 1581. And most of the region did not have printing presses until the 19th century after independence. Um, here we have a map um, showing the first uh, places where printing was established. And as you can see, it was established in far-flung places. Mexico is up here in 1539. It was the first place in the New World where a press was established. Then we go to Lima uh, in 1581. Um, and then we have two more places um, in the 17th century. Puebla, which is near Mexico, and then Guatemala in 1660. Both of these, remember, were part of the Viceroyalty of New Spain and had the densest population of indigenous uh, communities. Um, and then we have Lima, um, which was the only place in South America for a long time. Um, other cities... This is what it looks like um, through the colonial period. Um, so you have then a printing press in 1707 in Havana. Well, first you have actually the Jesuit missions of Paraguay, which is um, an interesting case because it was the first time that a press was actually not imported from Europe. It was built in the missions with indigenous um, materials. Um, we have then after the missions in Paraguay we have Havana in 1707 we have Bogota in 1736 we have Quito um, and so forth um, I wanted to point out that Buenos Aires uh, Rio de la Plata as it was known then um, Argentina, which and Buenos Aires, which in many cases, in many senses, is one of the more cosmopolitan cities of Latin America, really didn't have a printing press almost until independence. Um, so um, most of the rest of the region, for example, Central America, parts of the Caribbean, they didn't um, um, have presses until after independence uh, was complete. And how and why presses were established in different locations often varies. In Peru, there was already a university established in 1551. So there were the needs of university life, plus there was a need for missionary instruments based on local languages. Um, in Guatemala, there was also a strong native Indian presence. And bringing materials from Mexico City was unwieldy. In Bogotá, its establishment is the capital of a new administrative unit, the Viceroyalty of uh, New Granada, led for the need for a local press. And in Rio de la Plata, Buenos Aires, 
the instigation for establishing a press came from the Viceroy in the late 18th century, who advocated for the dissemination of local intellectual production and so on. So going back to this one, I think this crystallizes um, the difficulties of speaking in one broad stroke of anything that happened in the region at the same time. So why was printing not established more uniformly? In part because of the rhythms of the Spanish enterprise, and partly because of the fear of its potential as a vehicle for the spread of Protestant ideas um, in Catholic Spain and in her colonies. Um, but mostly it was because the printing press largely functioned during the first century of Spanish rule as an instrument for the Christianization of native populations. It was uh, highly regulated because of that. This was the case in the Viceroyalty of Peru and in New Spain, certainly. Um, so when we speak of Spanish America and the establishment of printing, we are not really talking about the whole region, and we have a very uneven picture. We know much more, and for a much longer period of time, about the book in Mexico and in Peru. And when compared to the information we do have about books in early Me Mexico, we know relatively little about the typographical history in other parts of the region. Um, and what we do know about local printing and book production occurred significantly later. Now there's another related part of the story of books in early Spanish America that I've already suggested and that tends, tends even more towards a Mexico-heavy uh, view of things. And that is that native populations did not inhabit all areas of the region equally. From abroad, people tend to think, oh, Latin American indigenous cultures. Well, that's not completely the case. Um, and even then, not all Amerindian societies who came in contact with European colonizers had writing systems, whether they were developed or not. In the Caribbean, for example, you had the native Tainos and the Arawakos, and they did not have, that we know of, they did not have uh, forms of writing. Um, and they died off early from exploitation and disease. That's why you have so many imported African slaves in that region uh, afterwards. And I say this because many book historians from the English-speaking world or from Europe tend to equate Latin American book history with um, native Amerindian texts. Um, that is, the painted manuscripts, the knotted cords, and other Amerindian forms of writing found by the Spaniards. Um, but in reality, the historiography of the book in Spanish America has focused more on Western typography and book publishing. And the study of the book in the region has its roots in the late 18th, but especially in the 19th century, after independence with the production of local bibliographies of printed books. When national identities were being forged, it was then that scholars first investigated the printing output and the intellectual production in their own new republics that um, they, um, and they did this as gestures of cohesion and of national identity. And these traditions largely came from Europe. Very quickly, I wanted to show you one of these texts. This is from 1755's very early one. Um, most of these came from the 19th century. And Eviara Yeguren, who's from Mexico, 
he publishes his Biblioteca Mexicana, but I wanted to show you, this is the Shield of the Bourbon King, this is the Virgin of Guadalupe, and then this is the Shield of Mexico, where you have the eagle on top of the cactus and um, the snake. So there we have a bibliography with a distinctive nationalistic uh, imprint. Um, by the way, he imported his own, he was a man of means, he imported his own printing press and paper to publish this. And this is just a little bit, um, this just gives you a flavor, it's in Latin of course, and um, he uh, has a very long initial section called the Antelopium, and it has things like on the intelligence and wit of Americans and their love for the study of letters. So it was very much a, an American-centric, by American I mean New World-centric uh, project. Um, so book history has been, until fairly recently, the story of print in all its aspects. Its arrival in Mexico in the 1530s, then in Peru, its subsequent establishment in various other cities around the region. It includes the story of the production, dissemination, and distribution of print, its associated labor force, the print shop, etc. And the study of Amerindian text, per se, um, the books, if you will, that the Spaniards found, have largely been the province of epigraphers, archaeologists, anthropologists, linguists, art historians, and the like, but not of book historians, generally. Nonetheless, increasingly, book historians have been incorporating the more marginalized groups as part of the story of the book in the region. This includes the role of women, later of African slaves and free people of color, and of course the Amerindian legacy and Indian communities after European colonization, and I believe this is a very positive development. So in what follows, I will first offer some broad strokes to sketch out a social history of the book for three centuries of Spanish rule, and I will refer mostly to how this history played out in Mexico, and to a lesser extent to Peru, in Peru, and then at the end turn to the traditions of native books in Mexico, with some mention of Peru. As I have already mentioned, the main reason for establishing printing presses um, in the Spanish colon colonies was to aid in the missionary efforts. So the first products of these presses were grammars and vocabularies in Indian languages, confession manuals that paid particular attention to native cultures and beliefs, and of course today they are mined for the cultural information they contained. Uh, catechisms, where the teachings of, the, of Catholicism were explained in native languages, devotional works, and other publications that aided in the administration and well-being of the religious orders that first came to the New World. You had Franciscans, Dominicans, Augustinians, and later on you had Jesuits, um, who were responsible for the press in Peru, by the way. So, I would like to show you... So, this is a project that what I've been able to find out is that it was a proposal to the UNESCO. So, what it does is it's a project with two libraries in Mexico, and they put together um, the National Library of Mexico and the Biblioteca um, Cervantina in Monterrey. And they put together the title page, all of their incunables, uh, first fruits of the press. 
that just gives you an idea of what these texts were about um, rather well. And so this is Juan de Sumarragán, Doctrina Breve. So this is the brief doctrine of the things that pertain to the Catholic faith and to our Christianity, and this was the first imprint. And then we have uh, uh, Christian doctrine for the instruction and information of Indians, um, 1544. Uh, this small treatise contains the manner in which uh, processions are to be carried out, 1544. Um, three part of Christianism and consolatorio, I'm not sure what a consolatorio is, but um, Christian doctrine uh, translated from Latin. Uh, Christian doctrine, again by Juan de Sumarraga. Um, and, and the most true and certain Christian doctrine for people without erudition and letters, um, in which we contain, is contained the catechism and information for Indians with uh, everything that's principal and necessary that the Christian should know and should carry out. Etc. You get the picture. So these were the first fruits. Um, in the 17th century, as the European population increased, the function of the press gradually changed to serve the needs of the criollo, the colonial criollo society at large, and not primarily Indian populations. And I also want to specify that the word criollo means something different than the word creole in Spanish. They both come from the same thing. They mean uh, cuna. Um, can you say cuna? Um, cradle. Cradle, thank you. Um, in Spanish America, criollo means the sons and daughters, the descendants of Spaniards. So that means that they were white Europeans. Um, in Louisiana, it's actually used differently. They use it to mean all of the descendants of French, whether they were mixed race or not. And in many places in the U.S., um, it seems that it's interpreted as only people of color. So you've got the broad range of things there. So one scholar, Magdalena Chocanomena, provides some telling figures of this transition from publication of Indian, uh, or the preoccupation with Indian conversion and criollo society. In the 16th century, from 1539 to 1600, the present Mexico City produced 300 editions. In the following century, um, they produced 2,007 editions. Of the 16th century editions, 31% was in native Indian languages. And during the 17th century, barely 3% were in native languages. In Mexico and Lima in the 17th century, editions in Spanish surpassed those in Latin or native languages, and typical products of the press focused on religious topics, printed sermons, speeches, and commemorative ceremonies for religious celebrations and funerals. Secular topics included royal regulations, treatises on medicine, trade handbooks, military topics, grammar books, um, bureaucratic or administrative manuals, um, and by far publications on religious themes uh, outnumbered other categories of publications. So local elites in the colonies relied heavily on the importation of books from Europe 
and also look to Europe to publish their works. And I don't think this was that different in the British colonies um, at the time. Thus, besides local print production, historians have also focused on the transatlantic book trade as another important aspect of book history for the region. And this is actually one of the most um, interesting chapters of book history in Spanish America, because for a long time, since independence and well into the 20th century, it was believed that Spanish censorship and importation restrictions, particularly of European books, had effectively stifled intellectual life in the colonies in the preceding centuries. This was the generalized opinion of scholars working in the 19th century. Um, and attention was turned to building national traditions. One of the key factors scholars pointed to as evidence of this repression were a succession of royal decrees that forbidded, forbade the um, export from Spain of the popular chivalry novels, um, also um, the um, reading or the taking to the new world of um, Protestant, um, uh, anything Protestant uh, was not, not, not okay. Um, and um, all of these, and, and in 1556, Philip II reiterated the prohibition against heretical books, but also the printing or selling of any book in America without the express permission of the king. And to 19th century historians, this just cemented the legacy of Spain as a repressive force, uh, etc. Um, but a number of scholars, including some from the United States, working from the 1910s through the middle of the 20th century, dispelled this notion very convincingly. convincingly. And what they discovered was there, in fact, had been a thriving transatlantic book trade. Um, and that there was a huge gap between legislation and actual practice. And that, as in the case of Cervantes' works, the latest titles were shipped to the New World, including its more remote provinces within months of their publication. And so today we know that from the 16th to the 18th centuries, throughout the colonial period, readers in Mexico or Lima or Cartagena or Panama or even more remote provinces such as Honduras or Buenos Aires, not only read the literature of the, of the Spanish tradition, but European classics, um, um, or, uh, Ariostos Orlando Furioso. They read also classical works, Ovid, Horace, Cicero, etc. Um, and even the works of Erasmus, and later those of Voltaire and Montesquieu and, and Rousseau were shipped to avid readers in the Spanish colonies. So, of course, we're talking about small numbers of readers. The Spanish-American colonies were a highly stratified society with peninsulares, who were people born in the Iberian Peninsula, who were at the top, and who occupied the highest administrative posts. And that was 1% of the population, if that. Below them were the New World Criollos, and those were 23% of the population. Then you had mestizos and mulatos, people of mixed race, which were 15. Then Indians, who were 55%. And then African slaves at the bottom. Much work still needs to be done to learn more about the interactions between those at the bottom of the caste hierarchies and criollo literate society. But overall literacy rates 
especially for the latter part of the colonial period, were about 10%. So when you speak of books, it's really a small percentage of people, and you have to think how manuscripts functioned, um, how oral culture functioned. Um, so one of the reasons we know much, so much about the transatlantic book trade and the dissemination of reading materials in the colony is precisely because of Spanish restrictions. The Spaniards were, if nothing else, very polished bureaucrats. And thanks to them, we have a lot of documentation on the period. Um, licensing for book shipments required that all shipments be inspected first by civil authorities, and then after, 19, after 1556 by a representative from the Inquisition. So a container of books would be delivered to the Casa de Contratación in Seville with a, a, a list, title by title, it was required that it would be title by title of all of the books in the shipment. At that point, it would pass on to a civil authority and then to, after 1556, to an inquisitor, and they would give the okay or not, and then the book would arrive in the New World or not. Um, so we have substantial records for the 16th and 17th century, but not so many for the 18th century. Apparently, things became more lax. Um, but for book historians, the later colonial period, from 1700 to 1821, is dominated, rather, by the study of the rise of newspapers and their role in the formation of a public sphere and in the spread of Enlightenment ideas leading up to the wars for independence. So colonial presses had sporadically produced broadsides featuring information about natural disasters and the schedule of arrival and departure of fleets and strange occurrences since 1541, when the first such publication appeared in Mexico. And the first Spanish-American periodical to be published regularly appeared in Mexico in 1722. And there was another one in Guatemala, also in the 1720s. Um, Lima's first paper was the Gaceta de Lima in 1743. By the end of the 18th century, a number of specialized newspapers devoted to science, medicine, and literature, along with other topics, were being published. The role of colonial presses in shaping social change in the late 18th century is a topic that is being explored um, by book historians and recent research on the much debated issue of the Enlightenment in the region has tended to stress that it was more the cultural, scientific, and economic aspects of Enlightenment thought that took hold in Spanish America rather than the more politically subversive ideas, which were promoted retrospectively as a result and not a cause of the independence movement. And moreover, it's increasingly clear that the latter were not revolutions inspired by the French model, but rather political civil wars instigated by Creole elites and not by oppressed masses in response to Napoleon's invasion of Spain in 1808 and did not substantially alter social hierarchies. So to conclude this section, I wanted to show you um, some issues of the Mercurio Peruano, which is an, um, um, a prime example of the intellectually progressive but politically conservative outlook 
that characterizes the earlier stages of the Spanish-American Enlightenment. And this periodical was published in Lima from 1791 to 1794. And it, it had wide circulation, and it was pretty influential. And um, on, it, on its pages, the writers promoted pub public education, scientific experimentation, and useful knowledge over received tradition on matters pertaining to the physical world, as well as economic progress, civic values, and a deep interest in all things Peruvian. And while the publication was instrumental in forging a strong Creole patriotism, it was nonetheless limited to an elite readership. Uh, even though by the standards of the time, the Mercurio was immensely popular, oscillating between 400 and 228 subscribers in Peru and abroad. Among the sub subscribers was the Peruvian viceroy, and this could hardly have been a context for subversive thought. Um, I hope at this point I've been able to suggest some of the more notable issues and events in the social history of the book in early Spanish America. So I will now turn attention to the Amerindian traditions of writing that Europeans found in the New World. Oh, this still the Mercurio Peruano. I just thought it was interesting. I just happened to be looking for something to put, and I found from New Orleans a shipment of sugar and barrels. Oops. What did I? Whoa. Wow. There we go. Poltergeist. Yes, I'm scared. Um, let me see. Oh, anyway, there was a shipment from New Orleans. I'm afraid to say anything more, given voodoo traditions and the like. So. Let me um, turn to, um, we, we have ample documented evidence, even though most of the texts do not exist anymore, of what the Spaniards found in a pre-Columbian traditions of writing. Um, what were these texts and how were they used? In Mesoamerica, now when we speak of Mesoamerica, it's Mexico and present-day Mexico and Central America is Mesoamerica. They were manuscripts or books, if you will, inscribed with glyphs, pictographic signs on either native paper that was largely made from uh, the bark of fig trees and other surfaces made of plant fiber or of animal hide. Now these painted texts were produced in the central valley of Mexico only. So in the central valley of Mexico, which is where Mexico City is, in southern Mexico, which is Oaxaca, the Yucatan, Mexico kind of goes like that, and in Highland, Guatemala. And they form a corpus known since the 19th century as the Mesoamerican Codices. And most of the pre-contact or pre-Columbian painted manuscripts were destroyed within the first centuries of contact in the early 16th century by conquering Spaniards because they believed they contained heresies or devil worship. And this is truly one of the saddest episodes of Western history, and certainly for the history of the book. And one of the most notorious cases was that of the Franciscan bishop of Yucatan, Diego de Landa, who, like others engaged in the early stages of conquest and colonization, 
considered the presence of native books as forms of idolatry that had to be suppressed. In 1556, he stated, we found a large number of books in these characters, and they contained nothing in which were not to be seen as superstition and lies of the devil. We burned them all, which they, the Maya, regretted to an amazing degree and which caused them much affliction. And we can just shudder at the thought of Amerindians witnessing in horror the destruction of their cultural patrimony um, and all of their recorded knowledge. Landa's single-minded religious zeal um, led him to destroy much of the extant written record of the time and to carry out a veritable holocaust wherever he went. And he was not the only one. At one point, he found himself back in Spain, tried by the Inquisition for carrying out his own Inquisition of Amerindians without authorization. As part of his defense, and this is the ironic part, he composed his account of the things of the Yucatan from which I just um, quoted. Um, a detailed report on Maya religion and language. He, he came to know uh, many, many people, informants. He won the trust of many in the Yucatan, and then he used the information against them. And this document of his, though ironically, included valuable descriptions of the Mayan hieroglyphs. And ironically, it turned out to be a Rosetta Stone. Um, from which in the 20th century, um, this notation, epigraphers who work with this, um, a Russian uh, linguist particularly, um, worked in the 20th century to decipher, I think, the main kernel of information that was in, uh, here that Landa provided was that it became to be understood that some of these glyphs were phonetic and some of them were pictographic and that was a watershed moment. Um, so it was Olanda who did this. Um, he lives in infamy. Um, so um, in later, uh, yes, in later decades, many historians and missionaries who came to appreciate the value of these documents as invaluable historical sources openly lamented their disappearance due to the religious zeal of the first generation. Now, quoting Dominican friar Diego Duran towards the middle of the 16th century, um, he says, those who with fervent zeal, though with little prudence, in the beginning burned and destroyed all the ancient Indian pictographic documents were mistaken. They left us without a light to guide us. And today, only 12 of the pre-Columbian codices survived. Um, they were composed between the late 1400s to the early 1500s. And their purposes and uses varied, but scholars such as Elizabeth Boone have grouped them into three broad categories. And I'm going to show you examples of these in a minute. There were religious books and guides for living. There were historical books, and they were practical documents. Um, the religious group included recorded protocols for rit ritual and ceremonial purposes to remind priests the correct procedures to follow on specific occasions. 
there were also divinatory almanacs that governed different units of time, and also books of dreams, songs, and orations, and none of those have the orations, yes, but the dreams and the songs have not survived. Beyond the strictly religious books, the histories recorded the past, both mythical and secular. There were cosmogonies that explained the formation of the world in the past and into the present. There were also histories that included the mythical origin of a particular group, which tended to all proceed from cave, and I'll show you an example of that. Migration into the present area, the founding and securing of their community, wars and conquests, the succession of their rulers, and so on. And yet another group of these books and documents dealt with more practical matters. They were maps and tax and tribute lists, census documents, legal books, none of which have survived. Boone also cites more ephemeral documents such as painted business records, records of court cases, and paintings of current news. We know that Moctezuma, the um, Aztec king, residing in inland Tenochtitlan, received painted bulletins announcing, first announcing the arrival of the Europeans, of Cortes and his troops on the eastern coast of Mexico. Despite the paucity of the original sources, we have a wealth of indirect evidence and descriptions of the original pre-Columbian documents from Spanish chroniclers. Now, native painting and forms of writing continued and in some senses thrived after Spanish rule. And today there are some 500 surviving post-contact codices. And most of these were painted uh, manuscripts, were recorded in response to the secular and practical purposes I have just described. In many cases, the documents were composed by native scribes to be used in litigation to establish territorial rights against the Spanish crown. We, there's a, um, um, a, a misnomer in calling the Spanish enterprise in the New World as a conquest. Surely there was extermination and surely um, huge alterations took place um, in cultural expressions, etc. But the languages survived and practices survived. Um, and many of these documents continued into, and forms of writing continued into um, the colonial period. Um, there were also two new genres that developed in the early stages of Spanish rule. These were genres that didn't exist um, in the pre-Columbian um, situation. These were the Testarian catechisms and the compendia of cultural information. Um, let's look at some of these examples. So to start, um, these are not obviously codices, but just to remind us that a lot of these um, uh, languages were inscribed in surfaces other than paper. Um, and so here we have, um, this is from the Latin American Library, um, but this is a, a Mayan stela, I think from Palenque, and um, apparently the inscriptions on the stela were usually um, political propaganda uh, for rulers. Um, 
And I put a couple of uh, vases. These are Maya polychrome vases from 400 to 800 BC. And here we have a scribe. Um, so here he has his ink pot. And here he has his stylus. And this one has in many Mayan um, depictions. Um, it's very stylized. He really isn't painting something. He's, um, oh, I know what I'm doing. Okay. So he's very stylized. This, this one seems to be a carver over here. Um, these vases were usually commissioned for ceremonial purposes. Um, here we have, again, um, Mayan vases. This is taken from a vase. And here we have two scribes. And here they are actively wetting their styluses, and they are painting. They also look like they're, something's coming out of their mouth. They're speaking. Um, this is just something, this is from a um, chapel in Pisatlan, Mexico. It's not far from uh, Mexico City. And this is where the, what I'm about to show you is located on the, one of these walls. Um, this is a 16th century chapel, and it shows the coexistence of Western. This, I don't know if you can see it well, uh, I wasn't able to get a more clear picture, but this is an origin uh, sequence, and here we have Adam and Eve, and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and then over here we have the Earth Monster, um, which was a Nahuatl belief, a Nahuatl belief, that people came, all of us came from the mouth of the Earth Monster. You can see people coming out, and those were caves. Usually caves were a sign of origin. And this fellow's name is Chico Mostoc, um, the Earth Monster. Um, this is just a little tidbit. Anybody who's been to Mexico has seen these things, and they, are, they always fill you with wonder. So here we have an example of a pre-Columbian codex. And this um, is how it's displayed. I'll have a clearer picture in a minute. This is the Museo de América in Madrid. And this codex is pre-Columbian. This is how they display it. This is a facsimile, by the way. This isn't the original. And this is a facsimile also that we have at the Latin American Library. So as you can see, it's um, in accordion style. And here is a page that actually shows you, um, this was an almanac. This was a divinatory almanac. So um, what, it, um, what it has here is this particular page deals with agriculture. So this identifies the specific date and time. This was done in 52-year cycles. And over here, we have the corn god. And what would be prognosticated here would be times of um, fertility and times of um, times when it was not good to plant. 
So typically, the books would be used by someone who was instructed in this, usually very um, high in the hierarchy, um, a, a soothsayer um, would know how to interpret these and be able to determine how to conduct daily life or how, to, how the community should behave. Um, So now this is a post-contact one. This is the Codex Mendoza. And this is an annals history. So instead of having a divinatory purpose, it portrays historical information of a specific community of rulers. In this case, the Mexica. Here, oops. Here we have, again, the symbol of Mexico, the eagle with the serpent on the cactus. And here we have a calendar. Here we have different towns around the central valley of Mexico. Here we have specific battles. And this particular, um, this is a historical account of the pre-conquest founding of Tenochtitlan, which was the Indian name for Mexico. Um, Inside, you have an account of different towns, and these would be tribute, pay. This is a, uh, an accounting um, mechanism. This signifies numbers. So whatever that is, they offered so much in tribute, or they gave so much in tribute. Um, and these are symbols that identify each town. These are shields, etc. And this type of document is um, um, a document commissioned by a viceroy, Antonio de Mendoza, to be sent to uh, Philip II um, for him to learn about his new peoples. Um, we have here then the Codex Tulane. As you can see, it's a completely different document. This is an original that we have at the Latin American Library. And this is a roll which is um, about 12, a little over 12 feet in length. And here we have um, different elders or founding fathers. Um, each one would be identified. I'll show you another picture in a minute. This is a campfire. And then this is a marriage scene. So you have different couples, the woman and the man. And this shows, this is a document that shows genealogy. Um, again, this is post-contact. Um, and many of these documents were made post-contact by indigenous communities to claim um, territorial rights. So if they could establish that they had been there for a certain time, they could gain certain privileges. Um, so here we have another better scene, so you don't have to be on your side uh, to look at it. This is on deerskin, by the way. Um, and this is another one that we have at the Latin American Library. Um, this is a census. And so it has an accounting system. No? It has an accounting system here. These are widows. These are the widows. And they have a tear coming down. That's how they are identified as widows. So this is definitely, a, um, this has a gloss 
in Nabahu, in alphabetic uh, writing. Um, and this is the Tesfarian Catechism. This is one of the two kinds that I mentioned that did not exist in pre-Columbian cultures. These are actually my hands. You can see how small it is. It's a few inches large. And these are very strange texts. And they were used by Franciscan friars. This is dated mid-16th century. And this is an example of a genre that responds specifically to post-conquest society and as an instrument for conversion. And they're curious documents because they are essentially European, it's a European idea of how indigenous languages operated and how pictorial systems operated. They haven't been completely deciphered, but what is known is that they function in a rebus-like manner. So you would have, for example, uh, a banner like that. That would most likely be in Nahuatl, it would be pantli, and then a nopal fruit, which would be a cactus, a fruit, the fruit of the cactus, and that would be nopli. And that, the indigenous listener would immediately know that that meant pater noster. So, who knows how that went? Um, so, but but many existed. I mean, there are only a handful left. Um, but they did exist. Um, and then finally, I wanted to show you an image of the Florentine Codex. This was done by Bernardino de Sahagún, who in many ways is a counterpoint to Landa, um, the Franciscan, he was also Franciscan, um, but how Landa um, just exterminated um, and, and destroyed many of the codices Sagun spent most of his life, which spanned the 16th century, composing the Florentine Codex, um, or the um, uh, general history of the things of New Spain. And this is the genre that's a compendium. He, without um, this book, without what Sagun did and his other works, we would know next to nothing or very little about um, the Nahuas in the Central Valley of Mexico. And just briefly, here, what, what's interesting about this is that um, it shows, it shows, this is a soothsayer. This is the year 10 rabbit, which means X. It, it had a divinatory meaning. And then it shows a soothsayer with one of these divinatory codexes, codices, using it to speak to a family, probably about the future of this child, who was probably born on 10 rabbit. Um, but it, it's quite interesting. And he worked with, um, at a university that was founded for um, Aztec, um, uh, um, the elite, uh, young boys, um, and he worked with them to produce this document. They were informants, and they were scribes, and they painted the pictures. Um, so this is what we found in Peru. Um, this is a picture of a people, a painting of a people uh, from a chronicle. And these are knotted courts. So these were 
that the knots were all different, the colors were all different, the placement on the string was different, and this was an accounting system. Recent research is starting to find that perhaps it contained narrative forms also, not just accounting. So I think we can stop here. Um, I will just say that I'm hoping that at least um, that book history in Spanish America is alive and well, that um, research is focusing more on not this kind of schizophrenic separation between the Western and the indigenous. Um, and then I've hope for anyone here that I've whetted your appetites uh, for either more research or more knowledge about these chapters of book history. Thank you.